Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing You've most likely heard about, and we've had several programs on, the proposed Keystone XL Tar Sands Pipeline, but probably fewer of you have learned much about Enbridge's possible Northern Gateway Tar Sands Pipeline, scheduled to go from Alberta, Canada, west through British Columbia and the Great Bear Rainforest, home to the Spirit Bear and a number of rare and exceptional species of animals and plants. Today for Spirit in Action, we'll learn from three guests of the urgent reasons for protecting this natural gem. At the end, we'll listen to Takaya Blaney, an inspirational young woman. Well, actually, she's just become a teenager of the Sliaman First Nations tribe as she sings for this region. Second up will be Elizabeth Shope of the National Resources Defense Council tasked specifically with advocating for the biogems threatened by the tar sands mining and pipelines. But right now we're going to welcome back Jim Backus, nature photographer and author of many photographic books, including Spirit Bears of the Great Rainforest of British Columbia. If you've got internet access, you could also watch the PowerPoint slideshow we've created to go with our interview with Jim. Just click on the link on northernspiritradio.org. Jim Backus joins us in person today in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Slide two. Jim, thanks for again joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you and good morning. When I heard about the Northern Gateway Pipeline, I knew I had to talk to you since you'd actually been to the site where this is going to be going through if it comes true. Tell us about the Great Bear Rainforest in your experience. I've made five different trips up there as a photographer. It covers about 250 miles of shoreline in British Columbia, and it's the last temperate rainforest in North America. Because of this, there's a lot of endangered animals up there, particularly the spirit bear or commodity. Slide three. That's my primary reason for going up there and photographing is for that animal. And it's deep fjords, beautiful country, trees that are over a thousand years old. Animals live pretty much free of humans. There's only one small First Nation village up there and beautiful country. I'll mention to our listeners that we are putting slides of this up on my website, nordenspiritradio.org. You go to that website and you can follow along in the slideshow that will give you some hint of some of the beauty that's up there. Jim has captured an awful lot of it with his camera. Now you said, Jim, you've made five trips up there. Not anybody can just go. It's pretty limited who gets to go in or how many people get to go in, isn't it? It's limited more financially than it is by anything else because there's only two ways to get there, and that's either by air, in a seaplane, or by boat. 
Slide four. I go on a sailboat when I go up there, a 71-foot sailboat, and travel in the area. Like I said, my primary reason is to photograph the spirit bear, which is an endangered animal. We should leave it alone. There's only two to 300 in the world of the spirit bear in a radius of about 250 miles. Slide five. To give you some idea what 250 to 300 animals left in the world are, the panda that we hear so much about, there's 1,500 pandas left. The spirit bear, there's only 300, let's say. The mountain gorilla, which is one of the most endangered animals in the world, has got 900 of them left. So there's three times as many mountain gorillas as there are spirit bears. And here we run around a pipeline in the middle of this beautiful country. All we would have to do is run that pipeline 400 miles south into Vancouver that already has terminals to handle this. Let's talk about some of those details. You say that you've gone in on a boat to get there. If you're looking at the PowerPoint presentation, you can see a map of the area and the area into which Jim has gone to take pictures of all the wildlife and of the countryside. It's a pretty impressive area. Slide six. If the Northern Gateway Pipeline were approved and it was delivering the tar sands to this area, the ships are going to be taking it out through what you've called fjords in the past. Talk about that area. So when you go in, you go up these fjords. Is that how you get to this place? Slide seven. We go along the coastline, and these fjords run in from the coastline. And if you look at the map, there's all kinds of islands. Princess Royal Island, for instance, is about 100 miles long, so we're not talking a small island. And these fjords are narrow and long, rock walls on the side of them. I've gone up some of these different fjords to photograph grizzly bears and the spirit bear. And I've been on the islands where the spirit bears are. Like I said, there's one First Nation village up there of about 60 families. And that's it for people up there besides visitors like me that go in there. I fly into Bella Bella and then get on the sailboat and go up there. And I photographed 20 different bears, so I photographed 8 to 10% of the population of the endangered spirit bear. To me, is it worth trying to damage their environment? Because sooner or later, there's going to be a tanker that will run aground and spill crude all over that area and destroy it. And it's such an environment that we can't let this happen. You even got an award recently, Jim, for an article that you wrote about the spirit bear. What was that award? The Elmore Chatham Award through the Photography Society of America. They published a monthly journal, and I got an award for writing the best feature article for the magazine. And it was on photographing the spirit bear in British Columbia in the Great Bear Rainforest. It told how to do it, where to go, and had photographs of my animals. So I'm pretty proud of that award. A number of the people who are promoting this tar sands shipment through this area kind of poo-poo the idea that a ship's going to go aground. Of course, we all know what happened with the Exxon Valdez, but even in this area, in the August 2011 National Geographics magazine, they talk about one of the boats that went aground in this area, that sank in this area. Do you know about that? Yeah, it actually sank about three miles from where I photograph a lot of the spirit bears, and it was a ferry that ran aground that's been going up and down this same channel for 
40 years, and it ran aground one evening. sunk the ship and killed a few people. And if that can happen with a ship that knows the waters perfectly well, it's not carrying the immense weight that a freighter would be carrying, that the oil tanker would be carrying. It sounds like it's an environment that is dangerous, that the environment is going to be endangered by these tankers. Can you see any way that it could be done safely? No, there's where they want to do this, it's up such a long, narrow fjord. It's just an accident waiting to happen. The simplest way is to run that pipeline 450 miles south into Vancouver. The only difference you got down there is you got more ship traffic, and I think that's why they want to run it into the Great Bear Rainforest. But why would you do that to a land that's perfect? You mentioned something that I hadn't heard before that they tried to make a deal, that is to say that that the pipeline company tried to make a deal with the First Nations people there to get their approval, to get them to buy into this idea. What did you hear about that? I heard they were offered over a million dollars per family, and the, the Native First Nation people turned them down and said, no, we don't want money, we want our land, and we want to keep it beautiful and pristine like it is. So that means more to them than, than the almighty dollar. You know, you photograph much more than just the commodity bears, more than the spirit bears when you're up there. You photograph all kinds of wildlife. Any particular ones that have been striking to you or particularly interesting, different than other places that you photograph? You've got how many books out now? Thirteen books, but I've got two books on this area. I've got a 140-page coffee table book on the Great Bear Rainforest, and then I have a children's book that I co-authored with a lady and it's no fun being last, and it talks about the endangered animals in the spirit bear. Those are the two primary ones. That's a children's book, like I said. And so some of the other animals up there that you photographed that are particularly precious to you from your experience? Slide eight. The grizzly bears. I photographed a number of different grizzly bears. Humpback whales. There's all kinds of bird life, eagles, ducks, other small animals. Slide nine. The pine martin, we photograph that where we're photographing the spirit bear because the spirit bear is on a river eating salmon. And if the salmon are in big numbers in these streams, the bear will eat the eggs. Slide 10. And usually the brain, and he'll drop the rest of the fish in the water. And then the other animals will come in. The pine martin comes in and cleans up what the bear didn't eat. Eagles the same way. Hawks will come in. And then we've got a wolf up there. Slide 11. The coastal gray wolf is a little bit different than ours. If you look at them, they're taller, longer-legged. They swim. They enjoy the water. And they eat fish. And our gray wolves don't like water. They don't like to eat fish. They will if they have to. There's a whole ecosystem up there. They've even tracked the salmon DNA up into the top of some of the cedar trees where birds have dropped it and it's gone into the ecosystem and gone into the trees and they found it in cedar trees at the very top, the DNA sample from the fish. And this is a protected area. That is to say that they don't log these trees, they don't selectively cut them or anything like that. What kind of trees are there? 
There's thousand-year-old cedar trees. There's some big red pines up in there. Most of it is pine trees that have grown up in there. Slide 12. As far as logging, there's some of it that they can log, and they're trying to get that controlled. I think there's a million acres that's protected now, but there's still like two and a half million acres they want to close to logging. But once again, it's the almighty dollar that drives it. You mentioned a tree that's a thousand years old. I'm trying to picture what a thousand year old tree looks like. So maybe we'll put up a slide right here of that tree. What's that hole within the tree? What is it just hollowed out? Does that mean it's going to die? No, that's a bear den and a barrel hibernate in there in the wintertime. And that tree is about eight feet across at its base. They're huge, and we don't want to destroy these any more than we do the spirit bear. Slide 13. You mentioned the humpback whales that are there, so you obviously do some of your photography out on the water as well as on the land. You say there's a lot of humpback whales. I mean, we can see a couple tails right in this photo. Are they in any way endangered? Are they in any way threatened? I'm pretty sure if there were tar sands spill in this area, they wouldn't be able to survive anymore. They would destroy their environment. That's right. All our whales are protected now. We learned a long time ago that we need to protect these, and we didn't need the oil off for lamps. We figured out something else. If we had an oil spill there, the whales would move out. They'd be gone, just like they did in Alaska. And all the bird wildlife would be affected by it. The trees, I mean, it would destroy the area. We've got some pictures here that you took of some of the bears, and it looks like you're up pretty close. I mean, or is this just a good telephoto lens? Slide 13. No, I've been relatively close to some of the bears. They're worried about the salmon and eating and not me. And I've been 20, 30 feet from a bear with no worry. Like I said, they're uh, worried about eating. I don't carry a gun. I have a guide with me that carries pepper spray. He's never used it in the 28 years he's been doing this. Do you carry defense as well? I mean, if they were coming after you, what would you do? No, I don't carry any defense. and I've never been threatened. I've been doing it for over 10 years, 12 years, and never felt endangered either by grizzly bears or the spirit bear. The spirit bear is a black bear with a recessive gene, and one out of every ten up there are born white. And why it's only in that area, nobody knows. Indian legend says that their god, the raven, after the Ice Age said that he wanted something to remember the Ice Age by, so he made the spirit bear, and he said it would live in a land where there would be no inhabitants on an island, and that's what's happened. There's no inhabitants on Princess Royal Island, on Gribble Island, any of the islands up there. This bear has existed for hundreds of years. Let's hope that it continues for hundreds of years. Give me some more of the detail of how it works out when you go up there. I'm pretty sure there's no holiday inns up there for you to stay in. So where do people lodge? What's the infrastructure? How do you keep from being polluting influences yourself when you go up there? Slide 15. We live on this 71-foot sailboat, and anybody that goes up there usually goes with somebody like I'm with. So everything's self-contained. And what we do is go in in the morning, we anchor the boat in a bay, and then go in a rubber boat called a Zodiac, and go in, and then we hike about a mile up into the island along this stream. And we use an Indian guide, a First Nation guide out of Hatley Bay, 
Marvin Robinson's his name. He'll take you up there, and he's lived his whole life with the bears and stays with you all day while you're photographing. Slide 16. And then we'll at night we'll go back to the boat and either travel to a different area or stay overnight there and go in the following day. We do all our eating on the boat except for a sack lunch to go up for the day into the island. And a lot of the photographing that we do is like the whales as well. We're going from one site to another off the boat. You can see so much off there. And then we'll go into different areas where there's Slide grizzly bears because the two bears don't get along, so they stay away from each other. So you pack your lunch. Never tempted to grab some of the leftover salmon that the bears left behind? No, it doesn't look real good after they get done with it. But it's amazing. You know, you can tell from what's left there on the ground if the fish is missing its belly where the eggs will be in the back of its head. It's a bear that ate it. And then the wolf will come in and he'll eat the head off the salmon and leave the rest of it lay. And then the other animals will come in and pick it apart. But if there's a shortage of salmon that year, the bear will eat it 100% or just about. Then all the animals are fighting for food. But the salmon are on a rise up there and the count is going up. Let's hope it continues. Do you have much contact with the First Nations people, what we call Native Americans in the U.S.? Do you have much contact with First Nations people when you're up there? Do you think you have a real sense of what their opinions are? Or is it only through the press that you know about this? No, I've spent some time at Hadley Bay because I've flown in there in a float plane and out of there and met the sailboat. And I've spent two or three nights in there sleeping. And I actually was lucky enough to go to one of their town meetings one evening. It's quite an experience. It's clean. They enjoy uh, life and they make their living off fishing and hunting. If we destroy that, they're going to have to move. They're going to be gone. I'm kind of amazed at all the photography that you do and all the books that you're churning out. It seems like every few months you turn out another one. And so what's coming up, photography, the beautiful places that you're capturing, that you're passing on through your books? I just picked up the proof from the printer this morning. It's on the grasslands of Wisconsin, and it's a little history on our grasslands and the different type of grasslands there are, and then some of the spots you can go visit in Wisconsin. What we have in Wisconsin, and a lot of people don't realize it, is the first restored prairie in the United States, which was in Madison, Wisconsin, and all the Leopold was involved at the Arboretum at the university, and there's pictures of that in there also. And I've done a lot of work in Nacita Wildlife Refuge. I've got a book out on that. They're all available on my website, or you can email me. I've got two different websites. Magoophoto.com is my first website, and then from there you can link into my other one in the upper right corner. There's a place to click, and it'll link you to the other website that I have. Slide 18. There's about 3,000 photos on these two websites, and like I said, everything's available in print. You can get a hold of me through my website by emailing me. So do check out magoophoto.com. 
check out some of the books. The Spirit Bear book is sitting in my house for perusal, and people come by and get to see the amazing photographer, the amazing bit of creation that Jim catches through his photography. Jim, thank you so much for doing this work, raising our environmental IQ, and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it. Slide 19. That was nature photographer and author Jim Backus. See more of his photos and books by visiting magoophoto.com. Before we go on to our other guests, I want to remind you that you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. Into our 10th year of programs, all on the web for free listening and download, along with further info about and links to our guests. There's a place for comments, add yours when you visit, and make our communication two-way. And there is a donate button, and your donation is crucial for the continuation of this full-time work aimed at healing the world and empowering others who do that work. But even more than supporting Northern Spirit Radio, I'd love it if you'd start by supporting your local community radio station, bringing to our cities and towns a slice of music and news that is nowhere else on the American radio dial. So start by helping them with your hands and wallet. But on to our second guest, dressing tar sands pipelines, including the one proposed to cut through the Great Bear Rainforest of British Columbia. It's named the Northern Gateway Pipeline, and as advocate for the international program of the Natural Resources Defense Council, Elizabeth Shope is tasked with fighting to preserve the biogems threatened by tar sands exploitation. Elizabeth Shope joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. Now, let's be clear. Your position is as advocate of the International Program of the Natural Resources Defense Council. Tell me about your position because I want to see how this dovetails with the work about tar sands. Yeah, well, like you said, I am an advocate in the International Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council for the last five years has been fighting tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada, as well as tar sands pipelines that could go to the West Coast, to the East Coast, to the Gulf Coast, and advocating for policies that will keep tar sands in the ground. What is your advocacy in particular? What are you doing, and how is an advocate different from other positions within NRDC? Well, as an advocate, I am a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, and so I do a lot of research and writing and also direct advocacy with government officials and have been working yet every means possible to keep the dirty tar sands in the ground. Well, let's talk about specifically why it's important to keep tar sands in the ground. We're going to talk very soon about the Great Bear Rainforest and the pipeline proposed through there, but let's start at the source. Tar sands, why do we want to keep them in the ground? So beneath the boreal forest in Alberta, Canada, there's an area about the size of Florida that contains tar sands. It's a very heavy hydrocarbon called bitumen that is in these tar sand deposits. And big oil companies are decimating the boreal forest in order to extract the tar sands and turn it into oil. Right now, there's about 2 million barrels per day of tar sands that are being extracted from beneath the boreal forest. Tar sands are problematic because they are incredibly carbon intensive. And additionally, 
Extracting tar sands is causing an incredible amount of air and water pollution, which is traveling downstream and affecting the health of First Nations downstream from tar sands deposits. Tar sands is really just a lose-lose-lose. It's sad where it's extracted. It is problematic to transport it via pipeline because these pipelines can rupture, and refining tar sands is also an incredibly polluting business. And so there's an extra measure of pollution in tar sands compared to petroleum resources that we normally get when we're taking oil out of the earth. Is that true? And, and to what degree? How much worse are we talking about? The bitumen in tar sands is incredibly heavy. So extracting it, actually, the whole process of extracting through combusting tar sands, it causes 17% more greenhouse gas emissions than doing so for conventional fuels. That means that we're going backwards at a time when we really need to be turning towards clean energy. I'm wondering some other things about tar sands. Uh, now, back when I was in high school and college, I was in debate and forensics, and a couple different times, topic was environmental, and that was the time of the oil embargoes from the Middle East. And so there was all of a sudden this oil and gasoline shortage here in the United States. And a number of people in their plans for the debate topic would include that what we have to do is shale oil and tar sands, that kind of thing, that we had to draw on those resources, and that would solve our shortage. So I know from that point of view, and that was 40 years ago I'm talking about, that some of the people's concern was we need energy independence because that protects us from things like terrorism or international blackmail. Do you get those arguments back at you, and how important is that at this point in time? Energy independence is absolutely critical. The thing is, though, achieving energy independence is something we need to do with developing clean energy, not relying on the dirty energy of the past, like tar sands oil. And those resources are there for Canada? I mean, Canada, which is where tar sands are coming from, do they have good alternative energy resources? They certainly have some rivers, and they, I think some percentage of energy in Canada comes from hydroelectric. What about solar and wind? Are those resources that one could draw on as well up in Canada? Canada is actually doing a lot to develop their clean energy resources. The vast majority of the tar sands is not being used by Canada. It's being imported by the United States, which is then refining the tar sands and then can export the tar sands anywhere in the world. So the tar sands are actually not a fuel that are creating energy security for the United States or for Canada. The tar sands are just actually creating major environmental challenges and by creating more climate change, are putting us at great risk of environmental disasters associated with climate change. I think it's always important to follow the money to find out what the force behind this kind of development is. Who stands to profit from tar sands? I think Enbridge is some portion, at least they're in control of part of the pipeline. Is there someone else who stands to profit? The national government in Canada approved this already. Why did they improve the pipelines? There are a lot of companies that have a stake in the tar sands. All of the major oil companies have a stake in the tar sands. ExxonMobil, BP, Shell, you name it, they've got a stake in the tar sands. 
Additionally, there are pipelines, like you mentioned. The Enbridge is a pipeline company, and TransCanada is another pipeline company that are hoping to build tar sands pipelines to transport the tar sands out of Alberta. So the Canadian government has been incredibly supportive of tar sands development, has not been listening to the people in Canada that have been saying no, that they do not want this tar sands development to proceed unchecked. There are really a vast array of companies that have a stake in the tar sands. Luckily, there are also a vast swath of environmental organizations, concerned citizens, ranchers, farmers, fishermen, and others who are standing up and saying no, that we need to defend our climate, our waters, and our resources, and say no to tar sands expansion and tar sands pipeline. I think part of the issue is, and one of the reasons I have you on today, Elizabeth, is because this is targeted to go through the Great Bear Rainforest, amongst other places. How dangerous are tar sands pipelines compared to regular oil pipelines? Canada actually has a fair amount of conventional oil and gas production that's going on in addition to the tar sands. They do have a number of oil pipelines running out of Alberta, which is where the majority of the oil and gas development is. There's an existing Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline that transports a few hundred thousand barrels per day of oil, including some tar sands, to Vancouver. So that's actually another pipeline that Kinder Morgan would like to expand Like you mentioned, there's also the proposed Enbridge Northern Gateway Tar Sands Pipeline. That would transport 525,000 barrels per day of tar sands from Alberta to Kitimat, British Columbia, in a really sensitive part of British Columbia's coast where tankers would then come in and transport the tar sands through really risky waters and send the tar sands anywhere in the world where it could be refined. So there's really two risks that we're talking about. One is the pipeline risk. Tar sands are heavy and abrasive and corrosive, and because they're so thick, they have to be transported at very high pressures. Those high pressures create high temperatures in pipelines, and those high temperatures actually create a greater risk of there being corrosion in pipelines and then pipeline ruptures. So the pipeline spill risk is great. There are a lot of sensitive river ecosystems that the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline would traverse, and a spill into any one of those rivers could be catastrophic. We already saw Enbridge is not a safe pipeline transporter of tar sands. Enbridge, back in 2010, spilled a million gallons of tar sands oil into the Kalamazoo River in Michigan. Now, over four years later, the tar sands that was spilled into the Kalamazoo River, much of it is still at the bottom of the river and will likely never be cleaned up. The other part of the risk that we're talking about is the tanker transport risk. A lot of the areas that the tankers would have to travel through from Kitimat to get out into open waters are narrow and treacherous. There are high winds. There are high waves. So a tanker crash into land and having a major accident and spill, you know, potentially even larger than the Exxon Valdez spill, that is a real risk that people are concerned about. 
the area off the coast of British Columbia is the area where the spirit bears live. There are only about 400 spirit bears left in that coastal area, so a tanker sale could be catastrophic to the spirit bears as well as to salmon and other species that inhabit the area. I'm assuming the way that it would work is a tanker spill would damage fish life in the area and part of the chain of fish life, that is to say, what the salmon eat. And the bears, I assume, eat salmon. So if you're destroying their food chain by a spill, it would be disastrous for this very rare and very precious bear. Absolutely. And also just if there was a giant oil spill, it would just generally make a lot of habitat uninhabitable for many of these creatures. I want to come back to the Great Bear Rainforest in a moment, but there's also other lines. You you mentioned there's a lot of tar sands that are being shipped already. Which way is it going and what are the other pathways for the pipelines that are proposed? Yeah, so we've just talked a little bit about the pipelines that have been proposed to the west coast of Canada as the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline and the expansion of the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline. There are, as you mentioned, several other pipeline proposals on the table. The Keystone XL Tar Sands Pipeline proposed by TransCanada would transport about 830,000 barrels per day of tar sands from Alberta to the U.S. Gulf Coast. As you're probably aware, there has been massive opposition to the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, giant protests, members of Congress, environmental groups, citizens ranging from farmers in Nebraska to ranchers in Texas and grandmothers from California, the whole nine yards. Many people from all walks of life have come together to oppose the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline. It would run through the Ogallala Aquifer in Nebraska, which is a source of 30% of the groundwater used for irrigation in the country. And so a spill into the Ogallala Aquifer would be very concerning and could put a lot of our croplands at risk. Beyond the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, and because there has been so much opposition to the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, there are a couple of proposals on the table to try to transport the tar sands to the East Coast. So there's a company, the Portland Pipeline Corporation, that wants to reverse a pipeline so that it could transport tar sands from Montreal and Quebec to Portland, Maine, after tar sands traveled through a number of other pipelines getting to Montreal. People in the Northeast are incredibly concerned about this pipeline proposal as well and have said, absolutely not, you cannot transport tar sands across our lands and waters. There's another major tar sands pipeline proposal, the TransCanada's Energy East tar sands pipeline. This pipeline would transport 1.1 million barrels per day, so it's a giant pipeline of tar sands from Alberta going all the way east through Ontario, Quebec, and all the way to St. John, New Brunswick. And so along with the pipeline proposal, there's also thoughts of building a couple of ports from which tankers could transport tar sands from Kakuna, Quebec, and from St. John, New Brunswick 
through the St. Lawrence River, through the Bay of Fundy, and down to the U.S. Gulf Coast or other areas that could accept tar sand for refining. But once again, people have realized the risks of tar sands and are standing up and saying no to tar sands pipelines, including the Energy East tar sands pipeline proposal. You know, something that just occurred to me, I understand why tar sands pipelines are more risky than regular oil pipelines, but I'm not sure if tankers carrying tar sands are in any way more dangerous than carrying just regular oil resources. Is there a difference in danger or are those similar? Carrying tar sands via tankers presents a major risk to the coast. As we have seen with the major tar sands spill into the Kalamazoo River, tar sands sinks when it spills. So if there was a spill of tar sands along the coast, you know, if we're talking about the coast, you know, the east coast or the west coast, it would be near impossible to clean up because the tar sands is so heavy. What happens is that the tar sands bitumen sinks and becomes submerges so that it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to clean up. So in order to be transported, tar sands have to be diluted with a substance called diluent. The diluent tends to evaporate while the bitumen sinks and becomes submerged. And that submerged tar sands, like I said, is so difficult to access and clean up. So we're talking about really a major threat to any ecosystem in which it builds. So I assume when it sinks to the bottom, it will coat any plants that are there, and that means that the fish that live off of those plants have nothing to survive off. I assume it disrupts the oxygen cycle within the water. All of those kind of consequences are part of this bitumen coating that would be on the bottom of the ocean? Absolutely. It's incredibly disruptive and every way imaginable to the ecosystem. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the Great Bear Rainforest where the spirit bear lives. I've already talked with Jim Backus about the spirit bears and via the Northern Spirit Radio website, nordenspiritradio.org. You can see a number of photos of these bears that Jim has taken when he's been in that area. One of the things that seems very important that even though the national government has given its go-ahead for the pipeline into that area of British Columbia, there's a lot of local opposition. They're the ones who are actually going to have to deal with the issues, and they're the ones who are more concerned about the local ecosystem there. Amongst those concerned are the people of the First Nations. Could you tell me about the size of that concern, and do you have some sense of why they're particularly concerned as opposed to other people not associated with First Nations? Absolutely. Well, there are more than 130 First Nations, many of whom have land and water that the pipeline and associated tanker traffic would traverse that has banned tar sands pipelines, including Northern Gateway, from crossing their lands and waters. This has really strong legal significance as the decision to build the pipeline would infringe on the BC First Nations constitutionally protected Aboriginal title and rights. The First Nations in the area, many of them rely on the land and water for practicing their traditional practices, including hunting and fishing, and really rely on the land and water for their livelihood. 
in a way that is different from the way that many other people do. And so they can see really what would happen if there was a major spill. It would affect them in a very huge way. And are they organized together in some way to have a voice? Are they a part of the Natural Resources Defense Council effort? Are they part of some other coalition that's fighting this possible pipeline through their area? There is the Save the Fraser Declaration is a declaration that more than 130 First Nations have signed saying absolutely not that pipelines cannot cross our lands or waters. Additionally, there is a group of First Nations in British Columbia that is working together to raise money for their legal challenges. And so they have a campaign that is ongoing called Pull Together in which they are working to fundraise for the First Nation opposition to the Enbridge Northern Gateway to stand pipeline. So, as we said, the Canadian federal government has approved this. There's First Nations groups who are opposing it. What about the provincial government? What's their stance on the pipeline going through their area? So, what's very interesting in Canada is that, unlike in the United States, A federal government approval of a pipeline does not mean that the pipeline is going to be built. In fact, with the Northern Gateway Tar Sands Pipeline, that is certainly the case. The British Columbia government has formally opposed the Northern Gateway Pipeline because they're concerned about the pipeline and tanker safety risks and the ramifications of a spill. They're also concerned about the fact that there are so many First Nations who are opposed to the pipeline. BC Premier Christy Clark has laid out five conditions in order to have BC support the project. But we believe that these conditions, including requiring the land and coast to be protected from oil spills and address the legal requirements regarding Aboriginal and treaty rights of First Nations, we believe that this means that the pipeline really will never be built and that BC will not support the Northern Gateway Tar Sands Pipeline. So given the unwavering opposition of the First Nations to the pipeline, the only way to address the five conditions from BC Premier Christy Clark is really to reject the pipeline. In fact, Premier Clark has indicated that there are 50 permits that BC has the power to grant or withhold. So without BC support, the Northern Gateway Tarzan's pipeline will not be built. There are a few more parts of this that maybe we haven't talked about One of the things that I think in our decision-making we sometimes lose track of is what the balance is. I'm sure that there are people in Alberta who say, if we don't have the tar sands mining, the oil production from there and outlets for it via the pipelines, that we'll lose our jobs. Is there some sense of how many jobs are created and how many jobs are lost because of the pipeline? So, for instance, for the Native peoples, they've lost their livelihood if they can't hunt or collect food from the areas where the pipeline is going through. Is there some balance of that that has been looked at as well? The question of jobs is definitely one that comes up over and over again when we're talking about pipelines. The one that I can tell you the most about is the Keystone XL Tar Sands Pipeline, We know from the Keystone XL Tar Sands Pipeline's environmental impact statement that the State Department prepared that Keystone XL would only create about 50 permanent jobs. It would also create several thousand temporary construction jobs, which absolutely are real jobs that should not be discounted. 
But the concerning part is that if there are people who are being made sick from the tar sands refinery pollution, we're talking about a lot of lost productivity from that time where people are sick. If people are faced with a major tar sands pipeline spill that affects their ability to do work, we're talking about additional lost jobs. And the biggest thing that is really hard to quantify is the fact that the tar sands industry is actually lobbying against clean energy. Clean energy provides so many jobs, clean energy projects. So I think what we really need to do is ramp up our clean energy projects and make sure to do so in a really strategic way that will allow those who need jobs to gain employment through clean energy projects that will be moving the world forward in a positive way. Another element that people, I think, don't include into the calculus of the pros and cons is my domain, the spiritual. And this is spirit in action. And Natural Resources Defense Council, I think, implicitly values something that is not valued by the general society to the degree it should be. Could you talk a little bit about the value, the value that goes beyond just dollars and cents, the bottom line calculation that accountants go through, what the values are of protecting the spirit bear forests, the other areas of Canada that are threatened, and the areas of the U.S. that are threatened by the pipelines? Well, you know, we know that people really value having protected space, having, you know, open space, having forests, and that there is a value that people place on just sort of knowing that these things exist even if they are not resources that they are likely to personally use. I would say that there definitely is a value in just having, you know, our lands and waters protected from oil companies, you know, regardless of whether or not they are resources that every individual is going to use. People can follow up in terms of some of these actions by a couple different websites. They'll all be on northernspiritradio.org, so you can look there. But stoptar.org is one of them. Savebiogems.org. If you haven't visited that site, there's a number of campaigns well worth connecting with. And, of course, you can always connect with the NRDC. It's nrdc.org. Any of those sites will get you connected with this, but you'll get there very directly at the savebiogems.org site. Now, I haven't asked you specifically, Elizabeth, about your concerns about this. Why are you an advocate for these environmental gems that we have? Why are you trying to protect it? Couldn't you make more money if you were working for Enbridge than if you were working against them? I am sure that I could make a lot more money working for an oil company, but For me, I grew up caring a lot about environmental issues. I have spent a lot of time outdoors and really cherish our natural world and the time I get to spend outside. I also am incredibly concerned about our changing climate, so I tend to dedicate my life to fighting climate change. I have found that there is so much happening in the world to increase carbon dioxide emissions and make climate change worse, that it is definitely a difficult fight, but I am up for the battle in the long term. I appreciate your work. I appreciate the work of NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council. I've been a member for a long time. 
I appreciate specifically the sensitivity to the spirit bears in the rainforest. They're an unusual gem, an irreplaceable gem that exists on this planet. All of that work and your continuing dedication, I thank you for, and especially for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thanks for having me. Find a few links to the NRDC's SaveBioGems.org campaign and to Elizabeth Shope's blog on her work via NorthernSpiritRadio.org. Clearly, there are a lot of folks working hard to preserve the Great Bear Rainforest against the proposed Northern Gateway Pipeline, and central among those environmental heroes are the native people around British Columbia. One of the inspirational voices for protecting this area is a very young woman, Takaya Blaney. She's been doing this work in word and song for more than three years, and she's just turned 13, I believe. She'd be speaking with us in person, but she's off to Australia right now for another of her international efforts. So she gave me permission to share a snippet of something from two years ago, when Takaya was just 11 years old. She has a grasp of issues and a mastery of word and song that so many of us can only admire. Her website is takayablaney.com. See the link on nordenspiritradio.org, and you can see her saying this on YouTube. The link's on my site. Here is Takaya speaking about and sharing her song, Shallow Waters. I'm going to sing a song that I wrote two years ago, and it's called Shallow Waters, and it's based on this super tanker oil proposal. It was meant to remind people of the damaging effects of oil spills. It was meant to remind people if we pollute and pollute and pollute, this beautiful ecosystem and biome that we live in will be all gone. And there's a lyric in the song that says, if we do nothing, it'll all be gone, which I think is the real situation over here. So this is Shallow Waters. And um, it was funny because a year ago on this exact day, I went to Enbridge Building to tell them what I felt about their pipeline, and I was escorted out, and I was told that if I didn't leave, I would be charged for trespassing. (laughs) Charge a 10-year-old girl for trespassing, so... Tankers and pipelines keep coming through I turned my head and so did you
Shallow Waters, co-written by and performed by Takaya Blaney. Find more of Takaya's music and work on her site, and I'll spell it for you. T-A-K-A-I-Y-A-B-L-A-N-E-Y dot com. Linked from org, of course, where there is a slideshow about the spirit bears and more. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.